You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Welcome to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Humphrey. This podcast is made possible with the support of our longtime supporters like the Whedon Foundation, Patagonia, and listeners like you. You'll find all episodes of the podcast and several ways to subscribe and download at rewilding.org, where you can also read the latest rewilding articles, Dave Foreman's Around the Campfire, as well as action alerts and rewilding field projects near you. This is the first episode of the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding team discussed ideas on how best to launch the new podcast and decided to start at the beginning by answering the question, what is rewilding? For the answer, we had to invite the obvious guest, Dave Foreman. After all, he is the originator of the term rewilding and founder of the Rewilding Institute. Dave's work spans decades, starting in the early 70s. He worked for the Wilderness Society as the Southwest Regional Representative in New Mexico and the Director of Wilderness Affairs in Washington, D.C., Dave co-founded Earth First in 1980 with Howie Wolk, Ron Kezar, Bart Kohler, and Mike Rozelle. In the 90s, he co-founded the Wildlands Project, which eventually led to what was then called a think tank, the Rewilding Institute, in 2003. You can read more about Dave's background and check out his books, such as Rewilding North America and Manswarm, at rewilding.org. It was in 1992 that Dave coined the phrase rewilding. It has since come to mean different things to different people and groups around the globe. I asked Dave to take us back to the beginning and describe how the idea of rewilding came about and who the players were that helped him start what is now a conservation buzzword, inspiring and guiding wilderness protection and restoration efforts around the world. Well, um, the background for it is that in the late 80s, as the original Earth First was rather falling apart. Uh, I had known Reed Noss for quite some time because he was writing conservation biology articles for the Earth First Journal, which I edited. And I had met Michael Soule while speaking in, in Michigan. And so really started talking with them that the next step I thought in my uh, evolution as a conservationist would be to try to bring grassroots conservation and conservation biology together. And so we began to talk more about it. Uh, I was, a, there was another movement going on of ecological restoration. And David Brower was talking about global CPR, conserve, protect, and restore. And um, there was a journal on um, on ecological restoration, but it tended to be quite technical and you know recreating wetlands and that type of thing. And Howie Wolk and I, way back in the early days of Earth First, had been talking about restoring wilderness, trying to put places back together by closing roads and eliminating vehicles and that sort of thing. And in fact, the number of wilderness areas were designated 
that after they were designated roads were closed in them and uh, vehicles prohibited that type of thing so around 1990 or so thinking more about it i decided that it was wilderness restoration that uh we we wanted and that i came up with the term rewilding to mean wilderness restoration and in fact the original name for the wildlands project was north american wilderness recovery and that is still how the name is registered in the uh, New Mexico Secretary of State's office as a nonprofit corporation. And in fact, the Rewilding Institute now has that 501c3 corporation. So the Rewilding Institute is officially North American Wilderness Recovery. And so that's how I really saw it that it was a means to, to really recreate wilderness. Uh, Michael Soule and Reed Noss and other scientists began to see key elements of how you would restore big wild ecosystems, taking it another step higher. And two of those key concepts were to restore missing keystone species, as they were known at the time. In other words, large carnivores, ecosystem engineers like beavers, prairie dogs, bison. And because there were really no areas outside the far north in North America that were large enough to contain uh, functioning ecological system, an evolutionary system. The other part of it was connectivity, which we now call wildways, which means that you take protected areas and rewilded areas like national parks, wilderness areas, that sort of thing, and you link them together by identifying the most useful and safest wildways or pathways for certain big animals to use. Uh, how does a mountain lion go from this mountain range to that mountain range? How do you get elk to spread around? Uh, from populated areas to areas where they used to be but no longer are? How do we encourage jaguars to come up from the south and repopulate New Mexico and Arizona and Texas? All of those things. What are the travel ways? And then on a grander scale, you take those travel ways and make them continental in scale. And I basically did a map at a Wildlands Project board meeting on the back of an envelope showing four continental wildways, one along the Pacific coast, 
one from the Sierra Madre in Mexico, up through the Rocky Mountains, through Canada, and to the Brooks Range in northern Alaska. The other one from Florida and then up the Appalachians. And then the final one connecting the tops of those three wild ways across the great wild north in Alaska and Canada and dipping down into the Boundary Waters country of the Upper Great Lakes states in the U.S. And so that was our sense of it. And Michael Soule came up with the notion of the three seeds, carnivores, pores, which are basically wilderness or other protected areas, and corridors. And I've sort of, and that was from more of a scientific standpoint. And looking back now, I realized that there was something we never really worked out in the Wildlands Project, is that some people like Michael and Reed saw the Wildlands Project as a scientific organization doing conservation, whereas I and some other folks saw it as a conservation organization, a wilderness-type organization using conservation biology. And those are very similar, but they're different and have different emphases. And I think that led to some conflict because we didn't really understand uh, our different visions. But anyway, I came up with three W's, wilderness, wildways, wildeors, which is the old English name for wild animals, and wardens, because you cannot have protected areas stay protected long unless you have rules and somebody to enforce those rules. And so that's sort of how it all evolved. And the upshot of it was around the turn of the century was working on various landscape level wildlands networks in the Southwest U.S. and Northern Mexico. And you, Jack, and I were very involved in the first one of that, the Sky Islands Wildlands Network, which was probably over-detailed and uh, complex, but it was the first one, and I think it laid out a very, very good model from the Mexican border up to the southern Rocky Mountains in Colorado. How do we create a system of linking with wildways, the national parks, wilderness areas, and other protected areas in Arizona and New Mexico from the Mexican border up to Colorado Rockies and southern Utah that's suitable for jaguars to come back into the United States or Mexico, for wolves to travel from New Mexico and Arizona into Mexico and up into Colorado and Utah, and for various other species. 
to be able to move about on that scale. We followed that up with the New Mexico Highlands, which was basically going from the Sky Islands Wildlands Network, which ended in southwestern New Mexico, and taking it then the rest of the way to the Southern Rockies. And then a Southern Rockies Wildlands Network was developed on the same model. And so by, oh, 15 years ago or so, we had completely laid out, I think, a very workable, practical approach to rewilding uh, from northern Mexico up to southern Wyoming. And some people have worked on that. Uh, They're still working on the pieces of it. The new Wildlands Network has been really working on it, mostly from the standpoint of the gaps in it and all. Um, But I have to say that nobody has really taken on the Wildlands Networks in an attempt to implement them. I think that was just maybe too big. And so... It's, it's being done, but in a more piecemeal way. One of the things about the Sky Island Alliance and that work that I thought was just amazing to me, I was just looking around at all of you, everybody in the room, and I'm thinking, well, we're just going to get out maps and start uh, drawing lines here, aren't we? And I remember that very clearly to myself, thinking, this is something that nobody knows how to do, nobody's ever done before, but... We're just going to do it. And I just loved the picture of, that I still have of everybody sitting around. Everybody was in the room, you and Sule and all kinds of, I mean, just about everybody that we will be talking to uh, on this series. That was really a raw and wonderful moment. And, and I remember also that we were talking about uh, implementation as we were also talking about, it would really freak certain people out that we're drawing these lines on these maps right now. Other stakeholders, ranchers, BLM people, okay, we were always thinking about that. Right. It started to really capture people's imaginations in a way that uh, people like me who came from you know, other organizations and we would fight you know, for environmental issues and little piecemeal things. This was the first holistic kind of big vision thing that I had ever been involved with. And I think it took off for a lot of other people in reading about it, about the result of that work, um, as it did for me. And um, I'm glad people are still working on on it, but but are you discouraged by um, how far we are or how far we you feel we have yet to go? Well, I think what we really accomplished is that where it hadn't been talked about before, things are part of the conversation now, like the restoration of large carnivores. We started in in the early 90s uh, before wolves were put back into Yellowstone before Mexican wolves were released in New Mexico and Arizona. Those things have become very mainstream, and not just in the United States. Wolves have now been reintroduced in northern Mexico by the Mexican government. And down in South America, 
there's a huge rewilding project on one of the large areas uh, Doug Tompkins visualized in northern Argentina, where they are bringing in extirpated species. And I've put together several million acres of federal, state, and private lands to make up this Kibara complex. And there's a rewilding Europe group that has been getting wolves and bears and lynx and other things back. In fact, there's more wolves now in southern Germany than there are in New Mexico and Arizona. And that just happened. Those wolves got there on their own coming from Eastern Europe. But because of making the landscape more friendly to them and the people more friendly to them, it spread. There are other plans uh, down where Botswana, Namibia, and Angola come together to restore large-scale elephant wildlife. So they're connected up. Also, where South Africa, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Zambia all come together is expanding on the 5 million acre Kruger National Park in South Africa. And of course, there's a lot going on in Australia on these lines and in Asia. Uh, there's some things happening in, in Russia as well as some other countries. So it's caught on around the world. In some places, it gets sort of moderated and the concept weakened. In fact, I just saw an article about this rewilding Britain group that wants to mainstream the concept of rewilding and get away from uh, emphasis on wolves and lynx and that sort of thing, which I think is twisting the name. Uh, other people have taken off on rewilding by saying we need to rewild ourselves and get in touch with some kind of, of vague uh, natural wildness. And so it's being used in many, many ways. And I think part of the goal of the Rewilding Institute is to really stand four square for the fundamental concept of rewilding and begin to really promote that and argue for all the parts of it and why it's essential. Otherwise, rewilding sort of softened and made more palatable is really just ecological restoration maybe on a bigger scale, but it's still basically just ecological restoration and not looking at all the pieces. And that's the key for the original concept of rewilding is that you look at all the pieces, uh, such as something I haven't men mentioned is getting natural stream and river flows back. Mm. When Earth first, uh, first did our little crack down Glen Canyon Dam in 1983, that started people really talking about taking dams out. And since that time, many, many dams have been taken out 
around the United States and in some other countries as well. And streams have been restored. Salmon have come back and are all over Maine now, for example, because of old dams being taken out in the Penobscot River. And so things like this just go on. And it's all part of a single concept of restoring wildness. And that wildness is species, it's space, it's natural processes, all of those. I really like that. I love that uh, summation. <laughs> and I'm just picturing that as it's going all over the world, as you're describing all the different places, uh, that that it might not be as important that our map from Sky Island or one of the other rewilding projects isn't what everybody would consider complete, like, uh, you know, a jaguar sitting in Mexico looking at a map going, look, I can go all the way up here without um, being <laughs> over a shot. But I, I kind of thought my, that might be the goal, as naive as I was back when we were doing that. It's like, this is going to, and for you to draw the picture of what it has done actually also speaks an awful lot to your entire career because when you crack the dam, I think before that happened, nobody had ever pictured anything like that before. I mean, it seems simple, uh, but, you know, you, you, you actually make people envision a giant crack forming in a dam and all of a sudden people start to envision, well, wait a minute, may, I don't like the dam that's in my area either. It's all silted up. It should be taken out or this one's a bad one. And that idea spread from that very point. And and for you to kind of couch this in terms of, no, the maps might not be complete on the ground yet, uh, and there's different work going on there still to this day, you introduced something again that made people think big enough about the big critters, the predators, the connectivity, the natural systems and everything else that they were able to go with their work and achieve things that they before were having a hard time putting words to and, and, and inspiring, you know, uh, the caretakers, the legislators and others to, um, to take action on. That actually is a really, really cool summation of what, just what's possible and what came out of all of this so far. Oh, yeah. I think we really did change the language and the vision of conservation work around the world. And I think that is a great accomplishment. And uh, a lot of people were part of that. And I'm very proud of the role I played in it. Uh, and you certainly were there at the beginning for it. So it's, it's something that, that caught on. It's, you know, certain ideas seem to be in the air and once it takes form, it just picked up everywhere. And so I may have come up with the word rewilding. It's even in dictionaries now, which as a literary fellow, <laughs> is really in the words and stuff, and the Oxford English Dictionary and that sort of thing, I'm tickled pink that a word of mine has become a real word it's in dictionaries now but uh i'm even happier of course that the concept is in people's heads and in their work on the ground so many people 
are doing it all over the world. I mean, the word rewilding is being said just about everywhere. It is. And that was one of the things that kind of kicked off the idea for this series was what, what do we do to uh, kind of recapture? Is there something that we can do to, to uh, fire this up? Because it's usually the geeks in all of the different areas that pick up on things um, in, in the different organizations and groups and regions around the world, depending on what they're working on and the focus and mission of their particular organization it's the geekiest among them. I, I always picture, you know, picking up a, an old Wild Earth journal or something and reading and going, hey, this is really what we ought to be talking. This is how we ought to be talking about it. We should get some maps out and do some, some of yeah. the work like this. And how does it make you, I mean, so it's all over the place. Um, it's literally all over the world. And what does it make you feel like in terms of uh, anything that might be binding it together in the future um, in terms of the work that Rewilding uh, Institute does to help tie these things together, to give people a, a bigger, bolder sense, uh, just an underlying sense of what's really happening. And then also the next thing, what is in your mind, the next thing for Rewilding? Well, I think, that remains to be seen, uh, to go beyond the cool concept to actually getting things done on the ground. And unfortunately, we're seeing setbacks all over the world, even to old-fashioned conservation. We don't need to be reminded of that in the United States with what is going on. Uh, and there are plenty of people who are enamored of having wolves back, but plenty of people who are going to kill any they see. And so it's as though for every couple of steps forward, we get pushed back a step. Then we're dealing with things like climate change and overpopulation, which are, are very big. And how do we work rewilding with those? And I think, for example, with climate change, that creating wild ways for species to move up mountains or from south to north as things do get weird uh, is about the best thing we can do on the ground. I don't know if the Homo sapiens is going to exist in a hundred years, uh, the way we're doing. But what my goal really is, is to have all the building blocks of evolution, which are the native species, the natural processes, uh, large chunks of land and ocean and lake and river that are off limits to industrial civilization as building blocks of, of evolution for whatever comes next. And that's the greatest legacy we can leave. And so that is very much a direction for rewilding to go because that's really what we're doing anyway. We said a long time ago, and you said way before that, 
it would be really nice if people would go out and fall in love in places that, that uh, then they would turn around and protect. We have 328 million visits to parks, I think is the latest number, somewhere around there uh, this year. And we keep shattering those numbers every single year. People, visitors, regular average civilians are finding uh, the national parks and other open spaces and wildlands um, in great, great numbers now. And that's presenting an awful lot of problems to the point where in the latest edition of Backpacker Magazine, there's a petition for more parks, which is really, really ironic in the current political climate that we find ourselves in, where parks are being taken away and protections are being taken away and, and nobody's even thinking about adding new places. What do you think about that? Did we get? Did we bite off more than we could chew by getting everybody interested in, in getting out there and experiencing these places? No, no. I mean, you've sort of got to do that. Dave Brower said that the reason we lost Glen Canyon to a dam uh, was that everybody knew the Grand Canyon, but nobody knew Glen Canyon. And in many ways, Glen Canyon was just as beautiful and magical and probably wilder than the Grand Canyon was. Uh, but because it was a place no one knew, which were his words, we lost it. And so that's uh, a constant conundrum for conservationists is that you really don't want people to know about the best places because <laughs> you want to just keep them for yourself or not have them run over. But unless a place is known, it's not going to have supporters. It's not going to have friends people who will push for protecting it and who will watch over it after being protected. That's why nearly every uh, land-based conservation group does field trips to areas they want to protect and how many of them now are doing ecological restoration trips there because that is one way to really get people turned on to a particular place and the things, the wild things in it, and uh, to feel some kind of responsibility for it. But on the other hand, we have people going into wild places inappropriately, wanting to take civilization with them, where originally a wilderness ex experience meant that you were getting away from civilization, as the founders of the wilderness movement would say. But now people want to take their earbuds with music players, and they want to take boom boxes, and they want to take cell phones and all this other stuff in the wilderness, all these gadgets that essentially cut themselves off from the wilderness they're wanting to experience and keep them connected to industrial civilization instead of seeking solitude or getting away from it all. And so those things disturb me a great deal. Uh, just like the, there are places for mountain bikes, but I'm really bothered by the desire of mountain bikers to get into designated wilderness and all over national parks. 
and how they're fighting the designation of new wilderness areas because they don't want to be locked out. Well, I can guarantee you that any mountain biker is more capable of going walking in a wilderness area than I am. I'm 72 years old. I've got 16 screws in my spine. Uh, the farthest I've been able to walk in over 15 years is probably five miles, even though I have been able to do very long canoe and raft trips. But so what? You can't take your favorite toy, your favorite gadget. That doesn't lock you out of a place. You just take it on its own terms by the rules we set up a long, long time ago. There is something for tradition and respecting what was done in the past. And in that sense, you can say, in the real sense of the word, wilderness is conservative in that we're trying to keep something. Uh, not that conservative as it's used today means conservative at all, but we are trying to conserve places. That's what conservation is. And now we're trying to restore them, rewild them, because we have already developed way, way, way too much all over the world. Over the last 20 years, I've seen various reports on how much, quote, wilderness, unquote, is left in the world. And people do it in various ways. Uh, Howie Walk and I did it for the United States with our book, The Big Outside. And we did it with maps and pocket calculators and that type of thing, where other people have done it with elaborate computer programs and they haven't come up with anything better than what we did uh, 30 years ago. But overall, every time a new world study comes out, on how much of the ocean is still not industrialized, left wild, how much of the world, from the tropics to the Arctic to the desert to Antarctica, et cetera, are still not industrialized, not overfished, or overhunted, or overcropped, overgrazed. The size and the number of places is rapidly decreasing just as we see populations of various wild species decrease. Uh, lions in Africa went from 100,000 to less than 20,000 in the space of a decade or so. Uh, same with giraffes. It's overwhelming the amount of damage that's being done on the land and the sea, even if we weren't dealing with global weirding from putting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and the sea acidizing gases in the oceans. I think rewilding the idea that we can not just keep what we have, but make it bigger and better and wilder 
might be a key element in inspiring people to say we don't have to put up with the continued crash of wildlife species, continued exploitation of wild places, the continuing spread of people everywhere, 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 of greater and greater acreages being ripped out of tropical rainforest, ripped out of wild grasslands or deserts, and turned into farm fields. Rewilding may be its greatest value is for inspiration, that we can do better. We can make the situation with the world, with life, with the tree of life that we have become wilder and more whole, that we can return species to healthy populations and have them be in more parts of their natural range. We don't have to put up with the constant bad news of fewer and fewer tigers, fewer and fewer places for lions, fewer and fewer wild places in Utah that aren't industrialized with mines and coal mines and oil and gas drilling. That may be the great value of the rewilding concept is to give people hope that together we can make things better. I feel like a lot of people could be susceptible to the idea that we can't do anything about the rest of the lions. We can't do anything about the elephants. It's just, how do we even stop it? And it's not helped by, I think, people who would develop lands and hunt things into extinction feeling incredibly emboldened in this period, this particular snapshot of history, um, where it just seems like there's people are just feeling a little powerless or completely powerless to do anything. And now when you say right. it the way you have, it really makes a lot more sense. It's not the way that I would have envisioned rewilding coming to its most important contribution to all of this, but it, it is. It's, it's, it is inspiration. And I think it's really important that people listening pass this around to everyone else who you know is a little dis disheartened and a little bit down or a lot down about the way things are right now. Um, and and the word getting out about the fact that we can go back. We have had a plan. You guys have been working on a plan for a long time about how we might keep those building blocks that are remaining intact and grow uh, them so that those building blocks are there and we can return things to a wild state, not just you know, the old, uh, the old wilderness movement, which was there's plenty of wilderness out there. We got to protect it. It just doesn't have any designation yet. And we got to work on that. Right. A lot of that has been done still continues, but I think this message of the re part of wilding <laughs> is a good one. It's, it will make people hopeful, uh, is my feeling. It does, it does for me. Well, I think, yeah, I think people need a hopeful positive vision and a vision that it's practical for them to work on that indeed in this crazy world today 
that it is possible to go out and make some place better, wilder, to bring it back. Yeah. And I think that's why conservation groups have so much success getting volunteers to go out and heal streams, replant cottonwoods, do all sorts of things. Yeah. And so it's it's trying to do something positive to leave a good mark on the earth in our short time here instead of a bad mark. I remember taking people out uh, to do service projects for Sky Island Alliance um, in the Blue Range, and we were doing road removal uh, projects. And that was another uh, cutting trail moment because nobody had ever really removed roads before, illegal roads for the Forest Service, who was more than willing to allow us to do it because they had nothing in their budget to get rid of illegal roads and we were putting pressure on them to do so. And then we just said, well, let's just go out and do it with augers. And um, I remember Dale, I can't remember his last name, was following behind our auger. We were making holes in the road so that, you know, debris would come and fill it up and, and sort of return the road to its, to a more natural state quicker. And he, um, he was the lizard guy and he's like, uh, my lizards are not going to, my lizards, they were his lizards, are not going to be able to get out of these holes that you guys are digging. So he came up with lizard ladders and he put a, a he, we found him. He didn't explain this until later. We turned around after about a half a day's work and we saw him putting little sticks in each one of our holes. And we asked him later around the campfire, what was that all about? And he's like, those are lizard ladders. And he had just invented yeah. that. Like we had just invented all this other stuff. And that's all to right. say the the campfire discussions after working like that in the real grueling heat, um, a lot of people coming from all over the country with jobs that that are not hard labor, um, a lot of blister talk, a lot of uh, a lot of band aids and <laughs> first aid going around uh, in the camp that night. But just the biggest smiles on people's faces, a sense of accomplishment, unlike any amount of petition signing and protesting could ever give a person in my mind from right. my experience of, of doing all of that when they got out and actually got to do something literally got to put their back into some work and then look at that at the end of the day what they had done uh for for wild nature just that was one of my biggest turn-ons with all the work. So for you to say, you know, it's, it's important for people to feel like they have things to do. I think that might be one of the things moving forward. Um, all groups want to take a lot more advantage of. Don't rely too much on your newsletter and pictures from you being in the field to inspire your people to give and volunteer in other ways. Get them out there so they can see right. it and feel it and touch it and smell it. And, uh, and work in it and fall in love with it. I, that was a really, really good program. I'm glad to see that Sky Island still does stuff like that and a lot more groups are because I've seen yeah. firsthand what kind of uh, a conservation warrior that turns out. Exactly. So how would you like to see people getting involved with rewilding in their area? Well, I think, a key thing is for the rewilding website and the rewilding earth online magazine to have 
the opportunities in it where people can get involved. So they can go to our website, they can read Rewilding Earth and see all kinds of things they could be doing in all parts of North America and how to get in touch and sign up to help or maybe to inspire them to try to pull off the same type of thing in their own area with their own local conservation group if it's not being done already. And so that's a big role for us is to be that kind of portal uh, for people to step through to go from being somebody who sits on the couch and watches nature shows on TV to stepping outside and helping to rewild nature. And leaving their phone at home or back at camp. Yep. (laughs) Thanks, Dave, so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Jack, for putting this whole series together. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.